Okay? They, they set up golden calves almost the first week of being a nation, and they kind of stayed in that era. And when God had told his people that you need to stay faithful to me, the, the last of the curses that he said he could bring upon them to get their attention was a curse called exile, taking his people out of the land that they were promised. And so in 722 B.C., 8th century, a kingdom by the name of Assyria, a world-shattering empire, came down and took Israel, the northern kingdom, into exile, removed them from the land. And, and Assyria's king or emperor was a guy by the name of Sennacherib. And Sennacherib said, well, while I'm at it, I might as well head down to Judah too. And so he's heading down to Judah about 20 years later, 701 BC, and he just destroys everything from the border all the way up to Jerusalem. And so here is this little, tiny, nothing country stuck in the middle of a dust bowl. All the good lands in the north, by the way. Stuck in the middle of a dust bowl. Facing off against one of the world's largest and most powerful militaries. And so Micah is more than likely saying this to the people either immediately before this happens, when it looks like it's about to, or as it is going on. People in Jerusalem are faced with the threat, at least the threat, if not the imminent danger, of the most powerful army in their region. God tells them, in the midst of this, that their smallness, their insignificance of place does not mean that it is unimportant to God. How does he do that? Because he points out this, this little, tiny town. He says, but you, Bethlehem, you, Bethlehem, even though you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, you're insignificant. From you is going to come this ruler, God's ruler, the king of all the world, will come from this tiny little town called Bethlehem in the region of Ephraim, which is to say God will overturn what our images of importance and value are, what our images of strength. And that is based on his promise. Look at the end of verse 2. He says this, uh, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from a boy. Now, this can mean a couple of things. Because we're standing on this side of Jesus, the cross, the incarnation, and all that stuff. We could say that we'd be like, oh, well, what this means is that this king is really, really, really old. Maybe even he was pre-existent, which is to say, like, he existed before he was born. That, that's the whole point of Jesus. Some of the church have thought that's going to be being communicated. But with the fact that God is speaking about Bethlehem, which is also known as the city of David, this is probably saying something completely different. It's not, it's not a reference to how old the ruler is, but instead the promise that God has made, both to David and probably a little back from Okay, So think back through your last week. Ken talked about, um, from 2 Samuel 7, the promise made to David. God makes a promise to David that you, from the, uh, someone from your body, uh, 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 an heir, a descendant of yours, will be on the throne forever and ever. You will rule forever. And we call that the covenant with David. You remember that? Can I talk about that? Give me some. Okay, some of you do. All right, well, good. Well, that covenant with David is actually part of a greater one. So I want you to imagine something, and I try to draw it up, but listen, I am not very good at drawing and certainly not on a computer. So I want you to imagine an umbrella for a second, okay? Umbrella, big umbrella. And you have those little 
We'll call the covenant of grace. And here's what I mean by that. In the garden, after, after humanity fell, God made a promise. Genesis 3, verse 15 and 16. He makes a promise to fix what we broke. We had turned away from God. We had broken relationship with Him. We had brought sin and death and awfulness into the world. And He says, I'm going to fix this. And we call that the covenant of grace because we needed grace. Humanity needed grace. There was no merit there. There was nothing we We messed it all up. And that one covenant of grace extends from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 that we're going to get to here in a few weeks. And within that, it is worked out through littler covenants that fit within that one covenant of grace. One with Abraham, or one with Noah, one with Abraham, one with Moses, David, and then later the new covenant with Jesus. This covenant, this promise, is part of something that has been from ancient times. In other words, the origin of this ruler is from the garden itself. When God said, I'm going to fix this through someone coming from the woman. I'm going to fix this through her. And then he says, and then I'm going to fix it through your family, Abraham. And later, your family, David. It's getting narrower and narrower until we come to Jesus. And this is important. God is working to do this. He's working to rescue his people. He's working to redeem the world. Not because Israel worked hard and indebted itself to God. I know that's how a lot of us kind of interact with God. It's more economic than anything else. I do X, you do Y for me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna play good. I'm gonna be the good, good kid, good boy, the good girl. I'm gonna come to church. I'm gonna, you know, when basket comes around, I'm gonna put stuff in there and make sure everyone sees it. And, and and we do that thinking that then God will perform for us. But this isn't because we have indebted ourselves to God, because God has made a desire to move towards his people. He's keeping his covenant, his promises. Because that's the kind of God that is. So that's the promise. But then we have unaccounted for blessings. And it's really three of them. Look first at verse three. What I want to talk about here is drawing home the exile. Israel will be abandoned until she was laid for his birth. The rest of his brothers joined the Israelites. Okay? I mentioned for a second, uh, a minute ago about this, this covenant, what we call a covenant curse. Okay? Here's the way a covenant curse. God initiates with his people. He says, he says, hey, I want to be in a relationship with you. You go, okay, sure, that's it, great. Because here's, here's the way that, that relationship is going to look. I need you to have faith and repentance. Okay? I need you to have repentance and faith in me. You go, okay, all right, that's pretty good. I, I can do that. He goes, no, you can't. No, really, you can't. You can't. That's okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put things in place for forgiveness of sins. But at times, you're going to keep going out of the way. You're going to keep walking in a direction that you shouldn't. And so I'm going to have to get your attention. So, so that you know how I'm going to get your attention, I'm going to work it out for you. And in Deuteronomy 28 29, he literally works it out for Israel. This is the way I'm going to do it. This is going to happen first. And if that doesn't get your attention, then this is going to come. If that doesn't get your attention, this is going to come. Now, what is the purpose of all of these things? Repentance and faith. Is it to make them pay? No, God doesn't need to make us pay. That's not the point. He's not making us pay. He's trying to get our attention. Parents, think about the way you discipline your kids. Now, I get it. Sometimes we're just angry. All right, I get it. But most of the time when we discipline our kids, it is not so that they pay. 
that is, that's a you problem. We need to deal with that. It is to correct them. It is to correct them. You know? If you've had a kid who's ever been playing here on busy street and they start taking off running, you're like, ah! and you run after them, you grab them, ah! and sometimes you might get a little out of hand and you're like, what are you doing? Ah! You're angry. Why are you angry? Not because they ran off. You're angry because they could have died. And you're trying to get their attention. This is why I need you to listen to me. Because it's going to kill you. You probably won't say that. But it's what you mean, okay? That's what God is doing with these covenant curses. And the final one of those is exile. I'm going to take you out of the land that you were made for. Okay, big deal. You and I, and there's probably, I mean, I know, this church is becoming more and more like folks who were from here. Early on in our church's days, there was like no one in the church who was from here. There was like four people. They're all in the front row up here. Everyone else was like a transplant. Okay? So transplanting to us is not a big deal. To Israel, it was a huge deal. Why? Because God's special presence was in that land. That's where he, that's where he dwelt. Oh, wait a minute, I thought God was everywhere. God is everywhere. That's not what I mean. Special presence. Special engagement. Something that no one else had. And if you were divorced from that, if you were pushed out of that, you were away from that. You were away from the promises. And it's meant to get your attention so that you will repent and he'll bring you back. It is restorative. And so Israel had already gone into exile for about, for a while at this point, right? They'd already been taken. And Judah, the southern kingdom, in about 150 years is going to do the same. And this is why one of the promises linked to the coming king who will make all things right is that he will draw God's people out of exile. Because think with me. If the reason for exile, the reason for the need for restorative discipline is because of our sin, then if exile is ending, it's because our sin is gone. So if your sin is gone, that exile comes back. The coming king, the coming of this king would be the drawing home of those who are in exile. So that's one of the promises. Then comes the promise of provision. Look at it, verse 4. It says that he will shepherd his people. Now, if you've read the Bible at all, especially the Old Testament, this idea of a shepherd, as a matter of fact, many of us, right, many of us grew up in, in, in church, some of us um, who did grow up in church tended to think that Jesus was a shepherd. Wasn't? He says, I'm the good shepherd, but he never shepherded sheep before. I mean, yeah, it was a metaphor, okay? Uh, but we tend to think, oh, Jesus' job was a shepherd. No, he was probably a partner, uh, but we don't really know, even know that for sure. But the idea of a shepherd is a pregnant image because all of the Old Testament kind of gives the idea that the leaders of God's people are shepherds. King David, shepherd boy. When God calls out the leaders, kings, priests, all the stuff, he says, my, the shepherds of my people are, all they're doing is using the flock. They're supposed to care for them. Shepherd is someone who is, who is there to, to, to guide and care for God's people. Shepherd cares for, guides, and leads the flock. He protects them. That's what that big stick is for. Um, apparently David also did a sling thing. Like I'm sure they, had, they carried some other things. And then they also guide them. They lead sheep towards good food. If you know anything about sheep, they're really dumb. They eat whatever's in front of them. So you have to lead them towards good food. And so if this king is going to come and shepherd his people, that means that he's going to provide them security. He's going to care for them, protect them. In other words, they're not going to be vulnerable anymore. And think about why that would matter. Because there's a mighty army that is either on its way or already there. 
a huge army, the world's strongest at the time. What this is saying is that the mighty Assyrian army will be nothing. They will be completely provided for, just like a shepherd provides and protects for a sheep. And he's going. He's going to do this by the strength of the Lord and the majesty of his name. The majesty of his name speaks to the Lord's authority. Okay? The majesty of his name is the idea that he, this, this king will be the representative of God before them, guarding them so they are secure. And this is because, again, at the end of that verse, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. What does that mean? It means no more enemies. This is key. Not just that he will beat their enemies, but that there won't be any. There won't be any. The kingdom that Jesus came to bring, is bringing, is not parochial. It's not limited to a place. It's not limited to a people group and ethnicity. It is to be global, a global kingdom. So he comes and he draws from the exiles and provides for the people and lastly he establishes our peace. Look down at the first part of verse 5. He will be their peace. Now, to one who's looking over the walls of Jerusalem and sees the army of Sennacherib camping outside, this is an amazing statement. But can I tell you something? Peace does not mean the lack of the war. I mean it does. But it doesn't just mean that. Some of you heard me say this a lot. The story of the Bible is that God created everything from nothing and created it good. And he created a universe in which everything was in relationship with everything else. Here's what I mean. We're in a relationship with God, or we're meant to be. A dependent relationship. And so we have that relationship. And then we also are to care for creation. Creation is supposed to respond to us. And so there's that relationship. And then uh, everything that kind of works out from there. You have relationships between people and you have relationships that we are all met. All of our relationships are supposed to line up in this kind of flourishing fullness that the Bible calls shalom, peace. The problem is, is that when we turn away from God, we broke that. And all of those relationships came apart. They came apart because the primary one, the one that was supposed to govern all of them, was our relationship with God. He placed us over all of creation as a representative. And so when we were broken, everything broke. And he just disjointed everything. And so shalom is this, is this state of all of our relationships with ourselves, with creation, with God, and with each other, all functioning exactly as they should without any disruption. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine not having a bad day and taking it out on somebody else? I mean, some of us have had, not had bad days. We get that, like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. I'm pretty good most of the time. I know. But what if, what, okay, so let's look at it the other way. Can you imagine someone else not taking out their bad day on you? Can you imagine this idea that everything is just kind of right in the world? What this verse is talking about is the king will make the world right. But even more than that, the king himself will be the rightness of the world. And he himself will be our flourishing. Evil kings won't rise up anymore. Exile won't need to happen anymore because we won't ever think of betraying God or each other. That is what shalom is. This king has unlooked for beginnings. He brings unaccounted blessings. 
And this will lead us to unmitigated error. So let's bring this home, okay? Three more points, I promise we're good. All right. So I want to say three things about this. First of all, Israel was looking for someone to come and make things right. Someone to bring shalom, to bring peace, to bring flourishing to them. But we're not any different. It's not as if, like, well, that was something they were We're good. We're fine. See, the story of Israel is, in one sense, the story of the world in microcosm. And the longing of shalom comes because, like I said, we lost it in the garden when we see it. Our sin brought the curse. It disjointed the world. It disjointed us. And ever since, we have longed for someone to make things right again. And our culture today is driven mad by this desire. Politics have become polarized and increasingly hostile because of the belief that the political process, the right person in charge, will make us right nationally, economically, sometimes even morally. If we can just get our guy in, everything will turn out fine. Everything will be good. The self-help section of bookstores has exploded because of the belief that we can make ourselves right in spite of our consistent failures. And we are crazy with the desire to compare ourselves to others and hide our faults so we can convince ourselves, probably everyone else, that we are okay. That's why Abe said what he said and stood up and started to pray. Like, just because if you're here visiting us, just because we might clean up nice, and you don't, that's up to you to decide that. But I think we do. I mean, just because we clean up nice doesn't mean we've got it together. We don't. We don't. Because our, tra- our, our attempts to cover our faults don't work. But what this passage tells us, though, is that the shalom, the fullness, the flourishing that we're looking for, it has to come from outside of us. It can't come from us. It has to come from the outside. And the claim, the outrageous claim of Advent is that it comes in the unexpected place of Jesus. To make the world right, someone had to deal with what made it wrong in the first place. And so Jesus dealt with it. And he dealt with it in a very unexpected way. He dealt with it by being crushed by it. This is about Advent. This is about the coming of Jesus. We have to talk about the cross. I'm, I'm telling you right now, you cannot have the cradle without the cross. You can't have it. The cradle doesn't make sense without the cross. Jesus bore the judgment that our sin deserves on the cross and rising again, put it away forever for those who trust in him. The flourishing that we're looking for in the world does not come from self-help. It does not come from politics. It does not come from hiding and pretending that there's something we're not. It comes instead by admitting our brokenness and giving it to Jesus to mend. Anything else is simply going to fail us. Israel was also longing for someone to come and protect them and provide for them in the hostile world they're in. The world was bigger than they were, seemingly, because it was bigger than they were, seemingly out of control. And like before, though they had tried to look to their own devices, their own strengths, the powers around them didn't seem to care. The armies of the world were always bigger and stronger, and we're no different. Because again, this longing didn't begin in Israel, it began in the garden. See, the problem in the garden, the problem in Genesis 3 was not that we ate a piece of fruit. And that was ultimately the testimony. But the problem in the garden was that we believed a lie. And that lie was that God didn't love us, was out to get us, was holding us back, was even threatened by us. And he could not be trusted. 
And so that if, if he can't be trusted, if we're going to see ourselves flourish in the way that we were made for, we're going to have to take God's prerogatives on ourselves. We're going to have to define right and wrong. We're going to have to define reality for ourselves because we can't trust him to do it. We believe the lie then, and we still do. Listen, guys, men, this is one of the reasons, belief in this lie is one of the reasons you are consistently afraid that you are inadequate. And want no one at work, at home, or anywhere else to figure this out. You know, right? Guys, you know, the world's too big for you. There's going to be a problem you can't fix. There's going to be a relationship you can't mend. There's going to be emotions you can't bear. You know, you hope no one else knows. Ladies, this is why you are afraid that no one's going to notice you and look on you with the light. You're not going to be enough for them to notice. We all believe that we have to fend for ourselves and have a consistent belief that the day will come when we aren't up to the challenge. But this passage tells us that this is not what we were made for. We were made for someone to shepherd us in strength and the majesty of the Lord because we were made to be dependent on Him. We weren't made to be able to manage the world. It's the good news. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to pretend that you're adequate enough to solve the problems put in front of you. It is too big for you and for me. So we were created to look to God for our provision. This is why, friends, even if, and I know some of you here are not really sure what you think about the whole Christianity thing. You're not really sure, especially because you think what we're trying to say is that you can't be good. And you're like, I'm, I'm pretty good. I know a lot of good people. But listen, here's the thing. Even if there were some amazing way that you could be incredibly, consistently moral and good, but you did that apart from God, you'd still just show yourself to be broken less than what, less than what you were made for. Because you and I were made for dependence on Him. The claim of Advent is that Jesus is God's unlikely answer to our need for protection and provision. And I say unlikely because a baby born in a cave is a strange place to try and find protection and provision. A child whose mother wasn't even protected from the inhumanity of people not willing to let a woman give birth in their room because they're like, I got here first. And I know we have these wonderful little manger scenes. You got this little barn and all this stuff. There was no barns in Jerusalem. It was a cave. Moms, I want you to imagine giving birth in a cave. No one was mucking out those stalls they had the donkeys in. Fun times. Her baby would seem to be a very strange candidate to protect and provide for us. Even stranger is the fact that we know that this same child wound up crucified by Rome for crimes he didn't commit. Something that even the one who nailed him there admitted to. The New Testament tells us though that Jesus conquered our enemies. He conquered sin. He conquered evil. He conquered death. Not by rising up the way we expect him to. Rising up and exerting more power than sin, death, and hell. But in fact, by taking all that it could bear. Every ounce of the power of sin and judgment and death evil and took it all. And then three days later, went, is that all you got? And shook it off. That's how he defeated it. 
He protects us from our enemies, not by saying they can't harm us at all. I mean, they harmed him. That would be silly. But by assuring us that they will not have the last word. Because in the advent of Jesus, is God's clear provision for the world. But finally, the last of these blessings that Advent brings us is the longing of home. It's this notion of exile. So like I said, exile is not just the idea that you're not living on a little patch of dirt that's yours. If that were the case, listen, Israel was already back from exile for a long time. Right? I mean, they came back in 586 BC, and then afterwards you had you had uh, Nehemiah, you had others praying, God, we're still slaves, we're still in exile to this day, even though they still lived on the dirt. No, it can't just be the dirt because exile is more than that. Because the exile of Israel is a picture of greater exile that we are all part of. And that's the exile from the garden. Because when we sinned, God said, exile became part of our reality. You cannot stay here. Exile is about being away from the situation that we were made for. Life before the face of God. Flourishing. I am willing to bet. How do you need to bet? I'm certain of this. Every one of us, everyone on this planet has the sense that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Especially if you're in your 20s. Right? Because then you're going to fix it, of course. But we all have the sense that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. It's as if we have this genetic memory of Eden. We look around and we go, even in the midst of the beauty, right? You could be sitting out, listen, listen, we just got past the peak season about a month and a half ago. You'd be sitting out driving across Afton Mountain, you know that little pass, you're going over the mountain towards Charlottesville, and you, you turn that corner, it's this vista on your left. And it's like evergreens and then it's orange. And you get that moment of oh, and then it goes away. And you're like, ah, ah I'm longing for more. I have this sense of like there should be, beauty should be able to stay. Beauty should be permanent. I should be in this place where the, the good experiences I have are more than just fleeting, where, where uh, evil is not rising up, where, where I'm not seeing bad things happen, where, where my relationships are, are jacked up. Like we have a genetic memory of Eden and we know this is not it. And so then we come up with strategies to either dull that ache or to seek to find it. So we find ourselves in addictions, wanting to eliminate the reminder that we're not home. When I say addictions, let me broaden that out. For some of us in this room, that's substances, okay? Let's not be silly, all right? Let's not pretend. For some of us, that's substances. For some of us, it's not substances, it's just behaviors. It's compulsive behaviors that we never stop. Or sex, or shopping, or something along that line. So we, we do something to dull the ache. We overachieve, hoping that if we work hard enough, we can get back to where we belong. All the time, feeling there's something wrong with us. Let's try and get back to Eden. We move from relationship to relationship, either platonically or sexually, wanting some person, someone to please get rid of the sense that I'm on the outside and everyone else is having a party without me. Can someone feel that for me, please? That sense of alienation. The truth is, is that all 
three of those things we feel, not because we haven't done enough here to make it right, but because we are apart from the presence of the one we were made for. And if we're being honest, most of us are a little nervous about that presence. Because the reality that forced us into exile in the first place, because we know that we betrayed God. But again, the bold claim of Advent is that our exile can only be ended in Jesus. He's the only one that brings us back into the presence of God. Because he eliminates our sin. That's the thing that keeps us apart from him in the first place. He eliminates it. He gets rid of it. And I don't just mean he wipes your slate clean. I mean everything past, present, and future. Gone. Gone. Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus describes his own work as bringing God's people back and thus the world back from our long exile from the one we were made for. And the amazing thing is, he doesn't do this because we've worked hard enough to get his notice or because we tricked him. We tricked him into it. He did this because of a promise from of ancient times, from of old. The promise he made to make things right solely out of his grace and his love. So let me conclude. The reality is that the other bold truth of Advent is that none of these things are completely answered now. Because some of you here in this room, like, you've been Christians a long time, you're like, Rick, I still feel like there's a party going on and I'm not going invited. I still feel like um, I'm not right and I'm trying to work hard enough to get right. I, I still have that ache and want to dull it. I do those things. I know. I know you do. So do I. That is why Advent is not simply a rearward, 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 looking back season. It's not simply a looking back season, but a forward-looking one as well. Because the truth is, is that in Jesus, things have been made right, but they are not fully and finally right yet. We are protected and provided for, but you and I know death still comes. We are on our way out of exile, but we're still, we're not yet on the new earth that we were promised. And this is where the power of longing comes. This season is not meant to highlight these longings, to then have us satiate them with presence, tradition, or eggnog. It's like Norman Rockwell utopia. But to sit in that still unresolved longing and to look again to Jesus by faith. To be able to sit in that longing and go, I know the world is not right and I know I am not right. And no amount of ham and and cranberry sauce and Christmas music is going to fix that. Jesus. Getting that new toy, that new new electronic device, it's not going to fix that. Having the best, greatest, good old-fashioned family Christmas is not going to fix that. It's going to end up like Chevy Chase's, right? But see, friends, faith isn't simply having all our longings met. It is instead trusting that they will be met fully and can only be met in Jesus. And I know that's hard. I know it's terrifying because to lay your life in the hands of another person is terrifying. But he is the one who takes up the role. He fits the job description of the only one who can bring us out of our longings. The only one who can shepherd us in the strength of the Lord. And the only one who is fully and finally our peace. Our fullness. Would you pray for me?
just let this con along and be just that, a con along. As we struggle to sit in that, give us grace to do so. Looking to you again. So foreign in our American way of looking at things that you don't take away bad feelings, that you don't take away feelings of emptiness. You don't take them away, at least not yet. Instead, you ask that we use those to draw us closer to you. Use those as a reminder that you're the only one who can fix it. And as you give us little tastes of that fullness, give us great, grateful hearts to look rearward and look forward to the time in which you will come fully and finally in this right. Amen.